This is going to be the last newsletter entry slash podcast for a while. And I admit up front, it's a bit longer than I normally do. Believe it or not, writing these, po- these posts takes a, a considerable amount of my time. And I'm starting to repeat myself, which is a sure sign of fatigue, and I need time to refresh. So my plan is to write sporadically throughout the summer till we get back to our typical schedule in August. There will still be a weekly prayer list with relevant announcements that's sent out. But before we scatter for the summer, I thought it would be good to explain, or perhaps remind is more accurate, uh, how this church approaches our calling as a church and how that thinking in turn affects what we do. Recently, David French asked whether the greatest threat to God's people comes from the outside or the inside. So does it come from the culture at large? Just think of you know being woke or anti-racism or LGBTQ or increasing governmental overreach? Or does it come from within? As French rightly argues, Christian orthodoxy points to the latter, to our own sinful hearts. But even as Christians may confess this doctrinally, their gut reaction is to point to the former, to things outside of us. My suspicion is that much of what drives Christian participation in the culture wars is based on gut feelings, not orthodoxy, and it's of a piece with what are called snowplow parents. If parents of millennials were famous for being helicopter parents, that is, parents who constantly hover over their children, micromanaging their lives, vigilant to keep them safe from any and all harm, snowplow parents, like parents my age, attempt to make life as easy as possible by plowing a safe passage for their kids. Instead of preparing their kids for the road ahead, a road that will be sometimes difficult, if not traumatic, and will end with their death, parents try to shape the road to fit their kids. And what helicopters and snowplows have in common is the refusal to admit the obvious. No matter our best efforts, the world is not a safe place, and it's an illusion to think we can make it so. Now, I'm not advocating for getting rid of seatbelts or giving kids free access to do whatever or making things, say, less accessible for the handicapped, and I'm certainly not fatalistic. Even so, it's realistic to recognize that you cannot keep sin, evil, and death away from your kids indefinitely because kids cannot escape themselves. You can filter out every evil media influence you want, and I advocate and use filters on all my kids' devices. But despite your best efforts, eventually the world is going to show up, whether you want it to or not. The road cannot be shaped to your child, and in the long run, it hurts a child to act otherwise. I'd argue it hurts the parents too. The question then is not how can we make the road safe for kids, it's rather How can we prepare our kids to walk with Jesus on a road that will eventually kill them, knowing that the greatest threats they face will come from their own hearts? When they fall to temptation or endure trauma or tragedy, when their marriages get really difficult or they endure a crushing defeat, will they naturally want to turn to Jesus or seek after repentance or endure the road with hope? Of course, this isn't just a question for kids. It's a question for all of us. 
Children, after all, require role models and teachers and parents to show them the way. Are adults the sort of people themselves who are prepared for the road? Or are we still fighting to reshape it in our own image? Now, to be sure, the road itself is growing more difficult by the day. According to the most recent Pew Research, while Christianity is by far the biggest religion worldwide and growing, representing 31% of the world's population, which is a, a little over 3 billion people or so, in America, Christianity is shrinking. Even as atheism and ag agnosticism, including the nuns or the unaffiliated, is declining worldwide and is a really small minority, even so, that group is growing among educated whites, that is, among people like us. Our road is a post-Christian culture. We see the impact of Christianity everywhere, even as our God has been rejected. So, if this is the road, and the attempts to remake that road have failed, how should we live? I've been making the case since I moved here in 2013 that Jeremiah 29 is a good model for our church. That's where God, speaking to his exiled people in Babylon, commands them to live faithful lives in the midst of a civilization synonymous with organized human rebellion against God. What God commands his people to do in exile is simple yet difficult and goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. It's basically this, get married, have children, plant gardens, and as it says there in Jeremiah 29, be for the welfare of that great city. God's people, you see, were to be a new Adam, faithful to him in Babylon, loving the very people that had carried them off as captive, captives, even as they, they knew that God, God's promised redemption was at least 80 years away. God's kingdom would endure and grow, and he would remain faithful to them there, but they would die in Babylon. Now, when I say living in exile, I don't mean building little walled-off Amish monasteries. Such a thing is, it's neither practical or really all that Christian. It's hard to be a light when you hide your light behind closed doors. Living in exile doesn't mean you don't work for the common good or try to enact change. I mean, after all, to be for the welfare of the city hardly means affirming its sin. Even so, no matter which way you turn, and it's as close as the phone in your hand, Babylon is surrounding you. You cannot wall it out. You can't pretend it's not there or try to make it Christian. You can't snowplow Babylon. No, Babylon sets the terms of the road. Even then, the real threat, despite all this, is still inside us. So whether in Jerusalem, the city of God that is, or the great wicked city of Babylon, the challenge remains the same. Will we remain faithful to God? And if so, what then does such a community look like? It may not be what you think. Peter Momsen, in a recent interview with Plow.com, said, in confronting Nazism in the 1930s, Eberhard Arnold, the founder of the Bruderhof communities, used to repeat that our goal must never be community, only Jesus. A mistake churches have repeatedly made in America is assuming community is the answer to much of what ails the church. But building community for the purpose of having community is a nonsensical goal. It's why so many groups, whether you know a youth group or accountability groups or, or whatever, 
feel superficial and strained or inauthentic. So, for example, the elders of this church meet in the session room every Sunday morning before the service in order to pray for the congregation and to review what I'm about to teach and preach. But the meetings in which we, we work through issues facing the church always happen outside the building in someone's home. There's typically food and drink and lots of storytelling. There's sharing the word. There's prayer. There's laughter. Now, we've also had big fights, too, in mundane meetings and, you know, everything in between. But that group of men, you know, in any other context, probably would not be natural friends. Cordial, of course. We're, we're all Southerners here. Friends? Probably not. What unites us is Christ. What has given us unity and fellowship and friendship and brotherhood and the ability to weather disagreement is not the pursuit of community. It's the pursuit of Jesus. He has bound us together. The church's goal, you see, is never community in itself. You can find community anywhere, often in ways that are far easier and more appealing than church. No, the church's goal is always conformity to Jesus, and it can't be anything else. He's what drives us. He's our common bond. Without him, there is no reason to meet together or pursue one another. That's why on the inside of the front cover of the bulletin, it says we only have one core value, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Without Jesus as our defining feature, we are just one more voluntary club or political action group that we can take or leave according to how we feel that day. With Jesus, we are bound to him and to each other, no matter what our feelings may be. It's why our vision is to be a people transformed by the gospel who are devoted to the triune God and his kingdom. Well, what is the kingdom of God? Well, you'll find this written in the bulletin too. The kingdom of God is God's rule over all things. We believe the gospel has something to say about every aspect of life, not just Sunday mornings in church, and that God is active in redeeming this world for his own glory. What does that mean practically for us? Well, it means we are devoted to corporate worship as the non-negotiable foundational action of this church. Without worship, we aren't a church. Every other endeavor we do, whether it's additional education or fellowship or missions, is in support of and supplemental to worship. A helpful way to think about this is how Stanley Harawas talks about the church. He writes, The church doesn't have a mission. The church is mission. Our fundamental being is based on the presumption that we are witnesses to a Christ who is known only through witnesses— To be a witness means you bear the marks of Christ so that your life gives life to others. I can't imagine Christians who were not fundamentally in mission as constitutive of their very being because you don't know who Christ is except by someone else telling you who Christ is. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, it is the task of Christians to embody the joy that comes from being made part of the body of Christ. That joy should be infectious and pull other people toward it. The fundamental way of bearing witness to the triune God, fundamental, is in corporate worship in which we pledge our love and allegiance to God before the world. 
This is where our church culture is made, together united to Christ in worship of the triune God. Without this, we may have a culture, but it won't be Christian. But as Howard Walsh rightly argues, you know, being Bearing witness does not remain inside the church walls. It flows out to the world. To that end, we are not so much interested in building church programs as we are this church going out into the world. From time to time, you know, people will say to me, I want to do something. I want to be active. And usually what they have in mind is a program in the church. Usually what I answer is, okay, tell me about your family. Or tell me about your neighborhood. Or tell me about where you work. You know, we can always use volunteers for things in this church. I mean, we're always in need of things for like Sunday school and VBS or what have you. But we want people to be witnesses to the joy of Christ and all those other places. The church is a mission. We don't have a mission. The church is a mission. We want you to plant gardens where you live and work. We want you to be for the welfare of the places God has put you. As leadership, you know, we recognize that to take this view of church life is is different from much of what's on offer. Now, to be sure, you know, from an outside perspective, we don't look very busy, and our building stands empty throughout the week. Where are their members, people may ask? In the world is our answer. You know, like Israel, who was commanded to labor six days and on the seventh day returned to God for worship and rest. So we engage in this pattern too. The temptation of you know, having a church building, as nice as ours, is thinking our church life should be bound up with it, as if this is where the Christian walk happens most. And as useful as this building is, and I'm very thankful for it, if my own life can serve as evidence... My deepest relationships did not develop inside a church building or a classroom. It happened over meals or walks or conversations. Now, to be sure, ministries of the church were often a catalyst, but some of the best growth happens in living rooms, locker rooms, restaurants, and hunt camps. You know, in reality, even as our building is dormant throughout the week, the church's membership is not. I ran through our directory and just tallied a list of names that directly influence institutions and schools and groups in this town, and none of those those impacts fall under the banner of First Presbyterian Church, even though they, all the people are members. You see, we are undercover Christians doing a version of guerrilla warfare that intentionally does not bring attention to ourselves, and that's how we want it. In our post-Christian Babylonian culture, that's what planting gardens and being for the welfare of the city looks like. We're not trying to compete with other churches. We're trying to go into the city. And when the city won't come to you, and remember, you know, this is Baptist country, and many people are very suspicious of Presbyterians. They don't know what we are. Well, when you're in that context, you know what you do? You go to the city. But the pandemic is mostly over, you might be saying. Why aren't we running Sunday school or planning VBS? Other churches are doing that. Why not us? Well, you know, I think that's a good question, and I'll give two answers to it. First, we're a small church. 
We are a small church, and most of the people, not all, but most of the people who volunteer for VBS and Sunday school are tired and burned out from a long 14 months. It takes a lot of effort to do these programs, and many of our volunteers are the same people who are deeply involved throughout Greenville right now. You know, for many of us, things have been more stressful, not less. I never want this to be a busy church in the sense that we feel we must run programs no matter what. To me, that's not ministry. That's a form of legalism that's linked to idolatry of productivity. Sunday school is coming back in August. Fellowship meals, men's and women's studies, and Sunday evening book study will come back soon after that. I'm hopeful we will have our fall church picnic and annual Christmas party. We will be celebrating our 202nd anniversary in April. There is a lot on the horizon, and we will soon be busy enough. In the meantime, people need rest. A second issue has to do with how we treat worship itself and how we do not see it as one program among many. Christian Smith, a Christian sociologist and professor at Notre Dame, recently wrote the following in First Things. He writes, The good news is that among all possible influences, parents exert far and away the greatest influence on their children's religious outcomes. Stated differently, the bad news is that nearly all human responsibility for the religious trajectories of children's lives falls on their parents' shoulders. The empirical evidence is clear. In almost every case, no other institution or program comes close to shaping youth religiously as their parents do. Not religious congregations, youth groups, faith-based schools, missions and service trips, summer camps, Sunday school, youth ministers, or anything else. Those influences can reinforce the influence of parents, but almost never do they surpass or override it. What makes every other influence pale into virtual insignificance is the importance or not of the religious beliefs and practices of American parents in their ordinary lives, not only on holy days, but every day throughout weeks and years. My unscientific and anecdotal experience of working with young people over the last 25 years confirms Smith on his data. Sunday school, youth groups, VBS, they're all good. They're all fine. They could be very helpful, but they cannot compete with parental influence, and it's not even close. How parents live out the faith, and Deuteronomy 6 provides a good model for how parents are commanded to do this. How parents live out the faith, for better or for worse, is what is going to affect their kids the most. Children see their parents in far more vulnerable situations, far more honest situations than, in, than what is often the artificial confines of a classroom or youth event. Southerners know there are certain Christian ways of acting at Christian events, and both kids and parents know how to fake it. At home, there's no hiding. Home is how you really are. Home is where the real education happens. Added to the home environment and, and everyday lived experience is the consistent practice of weekly gathered worship. But here's the rub. It's not just consistently showing up. It's how parents approach worship itself, and this is especially true of fathers. Worship intentionally involves your body, 
voice, your taste, touch, nose, ears, and mind. Parents, are you engaging with worship or are you passively watching? So do you actually sing? If so, how do you sing? Are you reciting the creeds with everyone else? If so, can other people hear you? Do you engage with the sermon? If so, do you maybe take notes? Or as you listen, uh, do, you, do you take maybe mental notes so that you can discuss it with your family later? Do you look forward to the Lord's Supper? Or is it just one more ritual where you happen to eat and close your eyes? Are you both modeling engaged worship and teaching your kids with the expectation that they will do the same. If you're not living it out, both in church and in the home, and teaching your kids to do the same, youth programs won't make a dent in your child's life. No, it, it may actually be worse. It may confirm to them that God doesn't really matter. As Smith argues, not only can parents not outsource their God-given responsibilities as parents, setting aside exceptional cases, what is nearly guaranteed is that American parents who are not especially committed, attentive, and intentional in passing on their faith will produce children who are less religious than they are if they are religious at all. That knowledge may trouble some parents, but it can also empower. So parents, we don't have some of the programs right now. Okay, what are you doing with your kids day in and day out? Come to worship. Talk about God day in and day out. Model forgiveness, grace, and repentance, and you will do far better than any youth pastor or Sunday school teacher can with your kids. You will actually be preparing your kids for the difficult road ahead. In such homes, instead of Sunday school being the only teaching a kid may get, it will be a supplement to what you are already doing every day. Well, who knows what the future will hold? I don't. You don't. You know, perhaps the ever-growing political correctness will wind up eating itself. Maybe. Or maybe it will eat us first. Either way, as a church bound together in Christ, we are called to love God and love neighbor to be for the welfare of our great city. The means God has given us are simple, even as they are sometimes hard to follow. Our goal is Jesus. Our goal is Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the road ahead for us, no matter what Babylon may dictate.